0: nursing homes, long-term care facilities, um, homes for people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. And incidentally, all of those places are where COVID was basically allowed to spread unchecked. Mm -hmm. And it was almost invisible, if not for the people who were paying attention and and publicizing these uh, issues uh, because these people are warehoused and out of public sight.
1: welcome to medicare for all week today's guest is ariana m planey Ariana is a health and medical geographer and an assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the University of North Carolina Gillings School of Global Public Health, as well as a fellow in the Cecil G. Shepp Center for Health Services Research. Hi, Ariana. Thank you so much for joining us for this special interview. Thank you so much for having me today. We're so excited. Last year's series really focused on taking a look at some of the historic fights for single-payer um, just looking at lessons in how things have gone in the past, the tactics, stakes, propaganda. But this year's a little different. It's all about building forward looking power behind a global health justice movement. And we're really excited to talk to you today. I'm a huge fan of your work, just conceptualizing healthcare access, looking at spatial equity and the ways that policies doom populations to premature death. So, for people who aren't familiar, do you think you could give us a brief overview of what you do and what your research area is?
0: Yeah, so I'm a train. I'm a health and medical de- health slash medical geographer by training,
1: and
0: the briefest definition of that I can give is that we study the interaction between health and place, um, with particular attention to places, people, and also the relationship between between people and places. And my work is Specific, more specifically focus on health care uh, with, with attention to health care access. For example, so most models of healthcare access, they're better suited for conceptualizing acute care access or acute or episodic use of healthcare. care. But mm-hmm. right now we have an aging population. We have a growing burden of chronic conditions or you know, chronic illnesses in our population. That require more than episodic care; they require coordinating continuous care. But these models don't necessarily capture that those aspects, those necessary aspects of coordinating continuous care for the management of chronic conditions. Um, so that's what I, that's the sort of niche I'm starting to carve out now, um, and. So there's like, there's multiple dimensions of access. Um, it's really important to think about them all. Um, most people tend to focus on affordability or the cost of care to a patient or the cost. Well, and even affordability there is fairly narrow. is the their definition of of affordability is fairly narrow, where they're interested in primarily out-of-pocket costs. But me, I think about affordability. So for me, affordability is also very closely related with accessibility or, say, spatial accessibility. For example, in my own work, I have found that in both rural and urban contexts, Black residents or Black people, uh, patients, have longer travel distances to care. And especially when you're talking about these academic medical centers um, where, and this is a brief sidebar, when, you, when we're talking about health care um, healthcare systems, we're also talking about property. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the strategic placement of these facilities, they're typically placed on high-value land. Um, so there's, this is partly why we see such a, like, vertical construction because that land has such high value um and often uh there's not enough parking that's a big problem there's not enough parking and so and they monetize the the little parking that there is so what happens is that people uh people may have to travel long distances to care and then they get there and they have to pay for parking
2: yeah, I used to work at uh, UPMC uh, in Pittsburgh, and I remember the—I mean, that's the part of town that is routinely, like, impossible to park. I remember people saying, it's like, it's routinely impossible to park there, and then the hospital garages were so unbelievably expensive, like, the hourly and daily rates were insane.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean there's even research on um I'm this is one area that I'm fairly new to but I'm beginning to work in, but financial toxicity for command cancer uh survivors. If it was up to me, I would use a different term, but <laughs> uh, for the sake of legibility, I have to use financial toxi- toxicity. But there is some research on that uh, in that area showing that the cost of parking actually adds up quite a lot for cancer survivors who are actively using, uh, you know, actively uh, receiving uh, radiotherapy or chemotherapy because they have to, you know, it's several times a week and mm-hmm. they have to, you know, that's on top of the, the drive the travel time and the cost of travel, the foregone income. Um it, it just it just all adds up. But the thing is with these episodic models of healthcare access, um, you also get these con- these conceptualizations of affordability that are very narrow and that are very specifically focused on Medical bills, but they're not necessarily attentive to the all these additional costs, uh, such as the travel time to get there, the cost of the the actual cost of fuel to get there, the cost of parking, um, the foregone income mm-hmm. when we use healthcare. So, in the absence of paid sick leave, or in the absence of you know generous leave for whatever purpose you need, people are having to forego income and pay out of pocket for healthcare care services. So it, it's, an, it's a net loss. So in my work, I'm focused on facial equity and uh, access to care. Um, mm-hmm. So I study spatial access to care primarily. I, I do a lot of other things, but my own work, I'm particularly interested in spatial access to care equity uh, along the lines of race, ethnicity, class, disability status, um, and thinking about what that inequity, what is it, what's that burden for a patient, for patients. Um, so, for example, there's a current study that I'm going to resubmit soon, but I collaborated with uh, some geographers and health services research, and we looked at the effects of hospital closures and mergers on facial access to care. And what we found was that in so this and this was between two thousand five and two thousand twenty, and what we found was that there are persistent racial and ethnic Inequity and spatial access to care across the rural South. So in the beginning of the study period of 2005-2007 and the end of the study period 2020, we find that like Black and Latino, majority Black and Latino rural places in the South, uh, residents in those places have longer travel distances to the nearest and the next nearest hospital compared with residents in majority white hospitals. And on top of that, Majority white, majority white places that have uh, better spatial access can be even more um, remote than the places that have majority black and majority uh, Latino residents. So it's not necessarily a function of reality or degree of reality. And so, but we see, and, and it's not, this is just a rural problem. We see this within metro or urban metro or metro regions or metro service areas. I mean, there are some exceptions like um, Baltimore where, um, Johns Hopkins, uh, the, the hospital was historically placed in uh, red line, majority black Baltimore neighborhoods. Uh, and there's a history of the Johns Hopkins hospital serving as a charity hospital, but the charity model is also quite extractive. Mm-hmm. And you see, still see these, like the vestiges of this extractive, Uh, relationship with the community around, uh, in academic uh, medicine. You still see that. Um, But so there are some exceptions to that spatial relation, but it's still true that proximity isn't necessarily the same as access. So there's, there's just tension I have to result, I have to navigate to um, because I was thinking about spatial proximity or spatial um, inaccessibility as a cost to patient, but also recognizing that spatial proximity, the healthcare system, isn't the same as access. Because um, we see this in New York City where um, majority black, uh, residents in majority Black boroughs Or neighborhood don't necessarily go to the nearest hospital. They go to the hospital, and because we see that um, academic medical hospitals, uh, academic medical centers, can and do divert Medicaid Mm -hmm. insured patients, so. Mm Patients who are like B- black residents who are closest, black and Latino, uh, patients who are closest to say Columbia's hospital. Um, they're not going to go to Columbia. Uh, Columbia, like they're not necessarily <laughs> going to go there. Um, they may have to travel longer, uh, travel longer distance to get to an emergency department that will take a Medicare and in- Medicaid insured patient. So that, like, that's another cost. Because uh, that longer response time in the ambulance can can make it quite a, it can be a, a life and death difference at, depending on the condition that that's being treated. And we also see, and there is some work on this in the area of birth outcomes, where there's just like this facility level segregation where you have majority Medicaid insured mothers giving birth in hospitals that primarily serve Medicaid-insured patients, um, yet these hospitals have fewer resources, less capital. So like certain kinds of screening, certain kinds of tests, they may have they may have to actually refer patients to another hospital because they don't have the capital or infrastructure to do those tests on site. So there's a lot happening there, um, <laughs> but basically thinking about this this. Primarily thinking about healthcare care in terms of the spatial arrangement and what that means for social equity.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is a, a thing that seems to be really missed in the debate over, you know, Medicare for all, which ends up just being a debate about, you know, who pays yeah. uh, and, and what they pay. But I think it, it seems like what you, one implication of your research is that when we have segmented financing uh, for uh, for healthcare. That it really ends up mattering for the quality of care that people receive, and and how far they have to travel to get it, and 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 so on and so on. I mean, is that is that sort of one, you know, potential implication that you see f- following from from some of the work you've yeah. done on spatial inequality?
0: I think so. Um, there's also the interaction where where you mergers and closures can often. So what happens with mergers and closures is you actually have less. Com- I have, don't believe market competition is the answer, <laughs> but neither do we. <laughs> uh, with mergers and closures, um, we do see that there's actually less competition in those market areas, healthcare market areas, and so what that means for the patients is that some of these patients may actually have longer distances to, for care to, to access care, and now they face higher healthcare costs or higher healthcare prices. Uh, which may translate to higher healthcare costs. So, m- longer travel distances, so longer time to get to care, probably higher cost to actually use healthcare, and on on top of higher healthcare prices. I haven't seen much work on that intersection.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there are just so many more factors to like understanding equity and distribution of health outcomes that are just like not often considered in the popular discussion of Medicare for all. Obviously, I understand that. Rhetorically speaking, um, I think there was a decision made to really focus on how it hits people at an individualistic level, how everyone is experiencing their own financial um, burden of healthcare. But I think ultimately this is kind of like part of a larger problem. And I was listening to a talk that you gave the other day where you talked about how so often we have these individualistic. Uh, solutions for structural problems instead of trying to address some of the larger causes of structural inequity. We sort of have this habit of individuating the experience of healthcare, the experience of health, and wrapping this up in this whole sort of finance package, which ignores a lot of the things that you've been talking about, like spatial distribution, rural access, etc., I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, that sort of push and pull between individual versus system-wide interventions.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) How do I, where do I begin? I did give a talk recently at the School of Public Health in Boston where I was talking about the uses and misuses of Spatial data um, by health in-house services, research um, by health uh, systems, and even insurers, where they use these spatial data, these aggregate level data, at the, say neighborhood zip code, typically zip code, to try to identify risk. So. To me, risk is such such a slippery concept. It can be anything you define it to be. <laughs> um, but what happens is geography is treated as destiny and there's no consideration of how places have come to be what they are. Right. People give lip service to oh social determinants of how fundamental causes. But when it comes down to it, they're using these population level measures to identify Individual risk, and typically that risk is only screened, is, ident- is defined and identified, or screened for in a clinical contact at an individual level. Um, and right now, too, in the past year, there was a p- paper came out that showed that health systems are spending billions of dollars on the social. Well, what they're calling social determinants of health uh, interventions to improve. Well, they call it population health, but what it really is is the the health of a subset of the population that's currently high insurance coverage and is in their service area, their their the health service area, and maybe a potential patient. Typically patients. (laughs) Right. So it's it's not actually population health, it's more uh, customers. It's their customer base.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Um, So we have these very fragmented and very expensive uh, interventions designed to improve what they call population health. And this isn't just health systems. This is insurers too. Um, Insurers are beginning to sell these, these sort of, Prepackaged interventions that are supposed to improve the house of, well, enrollees for a given fiscal year. um, And it's a, it's a very, well, it's their businesses. They, they're in the business of reducing losses and maximizing right. revenue. So that's what it, that's what it is, but they're able to package it up as, Oh, we care about population health.
2: Yeah. It's almost as if they're sort of redefining what health is I mean, they're, they're mm-hmm. you know, for whether it's for the reasons of marketing or whether or not they like genuinely believe um, that the things that the interventions that will reduce their losses in a given year also co- coincide with health. It doesn't sort of matter, but uh, and that's sort of like one function of having, you know, insurers dominate not only the marketplace, but the sort of uh intellectual sense of like what health is is that then this sort of this these some of these ideas just sort of get replicated, maybe even in this the scholarship uh, or the mm-hmm. public understanding of 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 health is like, oh yeah, these these interventions, which are purely designed to help uh, mar operating margins. Uh oh, oh that that's that's sort of like what you do to to keep people healthy.
0: Yeah. And then I would say another point important point too is this definition of population is really, really important because if so if this was a public health driven population health centric intervention, there wouldn't be the rash kind of rationing we see with these um, health system or insurer-led population health intervention. Um, and so not only are they delimited in terms of what is defined as a population, they're also delimited in terms of the time frames for those interventions. So because they're primarily interested in a pool of people who have coverage or are within a geographic range in a given fiscal year, that already limits the temporal scale of the interventions, the temporal and geographic scales of the interventions. Whereas uh, if if we had a well-funded public health infrastructure, we would be able to do this kind of work at scale for a fraction of the cost. And honestly, it would have a much bigger economic impact in the communities.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. One thing that I've found that's interesting just in my own research is like, for example, how many different definitions we use um, of disability to study populations Mm -hmm. and how like a lot of these ways that we conceptualize the groups that we're trying to target with interventions ultimately shapes the way that um these interventions are designed right like i guess if we're supposed to be looking at um these already not like biased but it's yeah but it is biased actually it's it it's is biased, biased. <laughs> yeah you're approaching designing this popu- targeted population intentionally right and And one thing that I've always found is really interesting is like the use of race as a risk factor, how you, um, yeah, how, how like studies like to try and adjust for race and how there's this sort of social reproductive process of saying that, that race in and of itself is some sort of like biological fact, which determines like health outcomes and, and almost frames like a lot of interventions as intervening in like race itself versus like (laughs) actual uh, structural violence, do you think you could explain sort of maybe for someone who hasn't heard this before uh, what the idea is behind um, when studies try and factor in race as a risk factor?
0: Yeah, so by treating race as a risk factor or a predictor variable, um, these studies are typically treating race as an individual trait and not a relational Trait, or it's not even a. I wouldn't say it's a, really a trait. Um, what how we are racialized is, is an an outcome of racism. So, I'm racialized as black based on my ancestry, based on my perceived phenotype, uh, based on my social positionality, and all of that is related. All of that, and you know, we can't quite extricate them because. That's what, well, that's structural racism. Um, right. <laughs> we, we are living it all, all at once. And when we just plug in, when researchers like myself, I don't I do it personally, I've been able to avoid it so far, uh, plug in race in a model as a, like a covariate or a predictive variable. The assumption is that race is an individual trait, um, that race correlates or correlates with or is biological. Uh, and this doesn't, this is, uh, I would say this is just simply fallacious because we, racism, what we know is that racism itself has biological consequences, but that doesn't mean race is biological. Mm-hmm. What it means is that the structural violence of racism has consequences for the health and well-being of people who are racialized, as black, as not white, however you want to say it, in a racist society. So we... When we when we treat race as the risk factor, we are just simply distilling all of these social relations, the, the consequences of those social relations and the inequitable distribution of these uh, resources and hazards. We're distilling that down to the body of the people who are racialized as black or whatever, and saying, Okay, this person's black and therefore their blackness must predict this bad outcome. It's it's easy. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, and it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about how we're just, the youth misuses uh, spatial data or you know spatially referenced data, treat geography as destiny. And so what's happening there is places that have majority Black residents, places that have been that, well, are basically the living legacies of racial segregation, and not just redlining, but the con- enduring practices of segregation, and of environmental racism, all of that all at once, they're just, what happened is, oh, well, people who live in these neighborhoods are probably Black, and they probably have poor health. And so, therefore, they're more at risk. So let's target our intervention there. And we'll teach them to be financially literate and teach them to use health care appropriately. <laughs> um, and this is also in the context of health care systems getting particularly private hospitals receiving um, community benefit incentives where they receive a sum of money for if uh, publicly insured or uninsured Low-income patients coming to the emergency department. Um, so, so this like the original intent of these this policy was to disincentivize hospitals, private hospitals, turning away uh, patients who couldn't pay for care. But what happens then is these patients, because they don't have access to primary, may not have access to primary care. They use the emergency department as their first site of care. And what happens then is their care is marked that like their help-seeking behaviors are treated as inappropriate, even though they are perfectly appropriate given the options that they have. Yeah. And so then they are targeted with, oh, financial literacy, uh, uh, oh, call this hotline, talk to the nurse and figure out if you actually need to the come to the emergency department. Um, and one example I like to give in my teaching is Baltimore. Um, so, again, Johns Hopkins, I don't mean to beat up on Johns um, <laughs> Hopkins. It's OK.
1: I think Johns Hopkins can handle it. They can
0: handle it. but um. For example, Johns Hopkins, the, 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 neighborhoods around Johns Hopkins are historically black, but when you, they're also historically disinvested, disinvested with poorer housing stock. Uh, there's also less sanitation in these neighborhoods. So what happens is that because of these structural factors, residents in these neighborhoods have higher burdens of chronic or inflammatory or chronic illnesses, such as asthma. Um, and, a lot of that is environmental as well. So not just the daily exposures to uh, race, like racism-related race exposures or exposures to policing and or exposures to policing. They're being exposed to, well, a neglected environment where rodents and roaches and, like, where they thrive. And on top of that, the housing stock is not great. So these places where they spend the majority of their life are driving these inflammatory responses, so residents in these neighborhoods are much more likely to go to the emergency department for asthma attacks. So in the emergency department, they get treatment for the immediate asthma attack, but they don't get any primary care for their asthma. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, getting back at these acute versus chronic models of access and healthcare use. Um, so when you're when you're you're simply incentivizing acute care use, and not uh, investing in longer term primary prevention or uh, continuous or coordinated management of chronic conditions, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get mm-hmm. the more more costly care that we we have to pay for. And I don't have a problem paying for it. I think we we have to do better and provide care that's actually more appropriate for what people. That better matches what people need rather than the care that they would well, not the best choices of a few, the best choice out of a few bad choices.
1: Right. And I mean, it's there's an interesting parallel, too, that we're sort of seeing how this really poor focus on like acute treatment is playing out during COVID. One example that I've found perif- particularly horrific is the fact that a lot of patients who have covid who are maybe discharged from the hospital because covid is considered to be an acute condition there mm-hmm. aren't really the billing structures yet to support a chronic diagnosis of like what people are calling like long covid or just the sort of tail phase of the disease mm-hmm. which we're seeing in a lot of people develop into long-term chronic conditions which are closer to my autoimmune disease than the initial disease itself that of, of right. the respiratory illness. And so Yeah, it's not just respiratory. Right, exactly. And and there's a chance that this is going to be lifelong for a percentage of the people who, who have contracted COVID, which as we know is a, a number that grows insurmountably higher day after day. And people are being mm-hmm. sent home from the hospital um, on supplemental oxygen, of course, if your county has enough oxygen to ration to send you home with. Yeah. Um, and insurance companies are denying supplemental oxygen, saying that you need a long term chronic diagnosis in order to um, qualify to be eligible. Which there's for no it.
3: code for yet. Yeah. Right.
1: And there's no code for it yet. There are people who are applying for short term disability or, um, you know, workers' comp. And COVID is not listed as a chronic uh, disease yet. So Mm-mm. you have, again, this sort of focus on the acute creates downstream problems, creates these exponential problems, which ultimately just further expand the gulf of, of health equity, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And then we had, I, I won't name name, but I did see a doctor the okay. other day tweeting about how, oh, COVID's gonna go out of style and journals are gonna stop publishing papers about it. And so it's like <laughs> so you're assuming that COVID is simply c- acute and that when the pandemic ends, the effects of COVID and those who survive are not gonna have reverberating are not, are not gonna reverber- reverberate across their lifespans. And those lifespans may be shortened. We don't know yet. It, right. It's to me, it's just callous. It's just, I think there's this image that people have in their head that the average patient, kind of like the average man or whatever, is a 25 year old, something, 20 something year old. And then everybody else is just a deviation from that, health, <laughs> that mind disabled, <laughs> uh, healthy 25 year old. And that's just simply not the truth.
2: Oh, right. And that, that sort of even creeps into the debate over Medicare for all is that like, you know, it, it, as we saw sort of initially that like the the sort of exclusion of like long term care from from the discussion is like, yeah, who, who are we assuming is the population that will ultimately benefit from this?
0: I think that has serious implications for how we finance health care. We already know this. Um, how we allocate health care resources, how we train health care workers and. Um, because right now we are not seeing. There's been a for decades now. There's been a decline in the number of medical trainees going into primary care. And at the same time, there's all these struggles over nursing scope, nursing scope of practice, where oh, we don't want nurses uh, as primary care extenders. You know, oh, we don't want nurses doing what we do. And it's like, well, you're not doing what you do. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. I mean, especially in rural places where we have growing shortages of physicians and nurses and physician assistants are filling those gaps.
1: Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that, like as Phil was saying, we've we've sort of been railing on as a pet issue in our in our project is is the specifically how the exclusion of long term care from a Medicare for all proposal is a horrible idea for all of the reasons that we've just discussed because it's start it's about it's about institution, instituting a new policy which baked into it is already got this distinction between acute and long-term care this mm-hmm. idea that long-term care is too expensive and i think what your work shows really well is the fact that from a structural standpoint the very fact that policies are framed this way results in some pretty horrible outcomes for people in the shortening of people's lives in reduction in their access to care or reduction in their, you know, what is it considered to be like quality of life years or something? Oh, and then goodness. these perceptions oh. or disability like,
0: adjusted life years. Both exactly.
1: Of them. Yeah. And then these assumptions are done, then like baked back into like additional structural controls, which sort of, it just creates this really impossible to overcome Blanketed system of inequity that I that I think people sort of treat as if it's like a force of nature or some sort of inherent mm-hmm. law to society instead of understanding what it is actually, um, which is design. Right. I I honestly.
0: So, for example, um, we do see there are a of some studies showing that. Um, People who ha- did not have insurance coverage prior to aging to Medicare have higher health care expenditures, worse health status, and so forth. We w- would not see that if people had, um, actual access to care throughout their lifespan. And yeah. I think that's partly, part of, partly what drives what we see in the, some that. the, even differences between long-term care facilities where you can see pretty profound differences in our status and functioning of residents in their in long-term care facilities, uh, depending on class, uh, racial composition, ethnic composition. Um, I know there's a couple of studies showing that nursing homes uh, that are in segregated neighborhoods that have majority black residents, um, there's higher rates of 60- re- uh, and 90-day uh, hosp- rehospitalizations hospitalizations among Medicare beneficiaries. Um, and that outcome has pretty profound implications for penalties uh, for, uh, for nursing homes and uh for hospitals too. And so it actually may be a disincentive for these providers, these for profit providers, to operate in segregated neighborhoods or neighborhoods that have high rates of uninsurance among working right. age people.
1: I mean, it, re- it really highlights um, how sometimes like simple universal programs like that don't immediately start off on the bat with these sort of border-making carve-outs of who is and isn't eligible, of who, you know, deserves or doesn't deserve care, because every eligibility decision is also a value judgment. And that's something that I feel like people yep. don't talk about enough. Um, yep. And so one of the things that I, I think I try and always emphasize when I talk to people about Medicare for All is that, you know, it's the pay-for is not the question. It's about ensuring that, structurally speaking, from day one, that we are building a foundation of a public policy which seeks to try and address these structural inequities and not reproduce them in future right. policy decisions. And that's right. a really conscious decision that needs to be made. And it's it's something that I think is often lost in the discussion of, of this policy, I'm sure probably because people are desperate and they really want their own health care managed. But I think it's very important to consider... How harmful these sort of like individualistic framings are, and and what this ultimately mm-hmm. results in, which is further rationing of care and the like cementing of these uh, notions, these fantastical notions of like some sort of like biologically identified uh, value system as like real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day, and it's, this is kind of a hard
0: one to disentangle too, because Medicare itself is. The political feasibility of Medicare itself was based on the explicit rationing by age. Um, right. And there was this idea that, oh, well, people over 65 probably worked their whole life and so they deserve to <laughs> enjoy their their retirement without worrying about
2: health care. Yeah, it was definitely um, a deservingness frame.
0: And then we see that with veterans as well, Right. And a uh, very narrow slice of, of disability, qualifying disability. So there's just one of the big challenges is going to be disentangling all these layers and intersections of rationing. Because with all of these all like with with every slice, a new industry, it was made,
1: right, right exactly. And those are you know, sacred jobs that we must protect, which are much mm. more important than people's lives, of course. <laughs> it's um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that is really frustrating, particularly when you start to see like it, it's great to see, as you were saying earlier, like health institutions make gestures at social determinants of health but i think that a lot of times also there's this sort of like collapsing of what that means and um you know none of these it's not like medicare for all in and of itself will will like change everyone's lives completely but i do think it's a huge start for a lot of the reasons that you were mentioning earlier particularly about um, like spatial relations and people being redirected or having longer distances to care because of limited provider networks or under mm-hmm. or uninsurance, as well as like dealing with a lot of the problems. Like, for example, I'm on Medicare. It sucks. I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I'm alive because of it. I'm incredibly grateful for being on SSDI, but it is like Really difficult to use and still really unaffordable. And eleven yeah. percent of people who are certified disabled the, of the deserving few who qualify and are eligible, eleven percent of those people die in the two-year waiting period before you become eligible for Medicare. Right. Right. And that that ignores the fact that like, you know, the more people who make it to sixty-five, right? People who make it to sixty-five who become eligible for Medicare, people who can prove their eligibility that they are disabled to the Social Security Administration. You need access to care to get to that point in the first place. So it's mm-hmm. just the programs that we have now just further reinforce who deserves to live into old age. Oh, and yeah.
0: I mean, black men didn't live the, the life expectancy for black men didn't get to 65 until 1995.
1: Wow. I didn't realize that, but that is a Yeah. That makes for sense. White,
0: yeah. Wow. yeah for, for, for white men, that was around nineteen fifty. <laughs> Wow. Oh God. So, like, there are serious racial and ethnic inequities in terms of who ages into Medicare, and also in terms of health status when they age into Medicare. And so that, like, that again, re- that, that again reflects that inequity. Like, um, we see um, black beneficiaries who are more likely to have aged into Medicare because they had end stage renal disease, one of the few qualifying conditions.
2: Right. So. But I, I think this is an important set of observations that you made. I mean, certainly from your work on disparities and access, but also the sort of the broader implications of the design of the health system for uh, these, you know, life, the life course and life outcomes. It, it, it from that perspective, it seems that it, it sort of seems to me that like the debate for and the constituencies for. Uh, something like Medicare for all are almost sort of by ignoring those things being defined uh, unnecessarily narrowly, right? Like Medicare for all, it would seem from from your research is is not just something that uh, has implications for uh, people who currently don't have insurance, which I think is is sort of the way that the constituency gets framed, and it's like no, oh, yeah. that's that's quite narrow, and then it's it's also not just the people who currently have insurance through their employer and worry are worried about like losing it. It's also people that don't necessarily they, like, even if they have Medicaid, for example, they might mm-hmm. not be able to get uh, care at a place uh, that has all of the necessary tests and services because they're being diverted uh, from, uh, you know, a hospital that that's close to them or uh, or whatever, or they're subject to these sort of uh, the whims of these, um, Sort of financial transactions that happen among insurers uh, in, in the place that they uh, they live, and so mm-hmm. it would seem that like by by just pretending that this is like about I don't know the the really ungenerous version is like it, pretending this is just about like I don't know like lowering the cost of healthcare, which is really <laughs> like a dumb way to frame it. Uh, but also thinking about it, it's like oh this is just about like filling in the gaps is like what your what your research shows is that it's about transforming much more. Um, than just right. like who happens to not have uh, insurance right now,
0: right? We can do a lot better than pulling in the gaps.
1: Oh, for sure. I think this is sort of one of the biggest arguments against against reformism, right? Is that in in like pushing for reformist policies, for example, like um, Medicare Advantage for all. We've got we're going to expand healthcare access, and everyone can buy into these um, private plans or into the public option or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about, when I think about that, it's just ah, that there's a certain duplicity in the arguments that people make here where they Mm -hmm. see administrative burden, they see administrative complexity as bad, except when it comes to low income, black, Latinx. Uh, patients who are treated as less deserving Um, so there's this idea that oh well this complexity is okay if say we pair it with, oh, an initiative to encourage financial literacy and help people navigate these uh, options they have to pick from a marketplace. Um, when even people who study these marketplaces have difficulty navigating, who study and even design these marketplaces had difficulty, <laughs> difficulty navigating them. So like, it's like, it's already set up so that the blame for the shortcomings of the sort of piecemeal solution is already placed on the people who that these solutions fail.
1: Right. And then, of course, like you use choice rhetoric to take away the blame for it. Right. Because if the if the whole point is like that, we need to develop individual consumer literacy, that the real problem with healthcare is not that. It's inaccessible and inequitable. It's that we're illiterate when it comes to making good health (laughs) decisions. I'm laughing at saying that. The prices
0: need to be more transparent parent. Uh, um, right. But That's the one of my is, like Those prices, they're the list prices. The the actual cost of care is very different from the list price, depending on who's paying for the care. So someone who's self-paying is probably gonna be charged the list price. Someone who's covered by Medicare and Medicaid is probably gonna be gonna be cover uh, charged the uh, what Medicare and Medicaid will cover and may possibly receive the balance bill mm-hmm. uh, without those protections. Um, while someone who has an uh, insured employer-sponsored insurance, um, it's going to that charge will go to the insurance in the, the insurance company before they ever see it. Generally, the the list price isn't at the actual cost of care. I, I think it's really important to distinguish between the list price and the cost of care. Yeah, because in that debate over price transparency, there's so much focus on list prices and not on what <laughs> people are actually paying for care. And it and that even goes beyond what they build.
3: I think um that's one of the I think that's one of the key things that really makes it so that whenever whenever someone suggests these sort of blanket uh not even blanket but like these sort of health reforms um saying like oh why can't we just do why can't we do yeah like like you're saying education programs to 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 tell people how they can get their healthcare or why can't we just do more um, price transparency so that the market can work it out. It ignores the fact that those reforms um, or the idea of those reforms does absolutely nothing for any potential for like political coordination or leverage that could be done Mm -hmm. through whether it's something like a single payer system or instituting an American NHS or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, i i keep thinking about this thing that i wanna i wanna bring us back to which is that towards the beginning um when you were talking about uh parking lots and financial toxicity um one of the th- one of the things that you started talking about uh really uh or one of the things that you mentioned really struck me which was uh talking about um, hospital locations and the sort of material reality of hospitals as, you know, just implicated like anything else as within the realm of uh, property relations, which I think is right. really, you know, uh, like that's, that's obviously objectively true. Um, but I think and I think we so rarely think of like the geography even of hospital locations in terms of in terms of like uh, geography or power structures, unless we're talking about You know, the press will write about rural hospitals or, you know, I guess people will maybe like yelp the hospital near them to see if it's like, if, you know, like, like how to put it, like gentrifier people, like people in gentrifying neighborhoods will like yelp hospitals near them to see if they should like go there to the ER or to like another Mm -hmm. place, which is a super gross practice that people, you know, people legitimately do. um, And, you know, for valid, I, I think for like valid concerns, but not for. But, you know, again, ignoring these sort of like structural problems. And I think that um it, it just strikes me, and one of the th- reasons I think that um your your research and the focus on, for instance, even just talking about like the geography of uh healthcare is so important is because I think it really demonstrates uh, you know, some of these things are things that we can't really change without having a mechanism of public leverage right if instead it's going to be just left to the historically racist and historically exploitative uh regular processes of capitalism so you even so you either are putting a hospital in a place where it's going to be sort of like a real estate investment or you're going to be putting a hospital somewhere where it's going to be an extractive uh force within a community right <laughs>
0: yeah i remember when I was reading about the history and geography of hospital closures in New York State, there was a, na- a hospital in Harlem that closed. That fine, It wasn't closed because it wasn't financially solvent. It was closed because it would have been more profitable as a development oh. uh, versus as a hospital. Yes. So that, that neighborhood, that borough, lost a hospital because a developer wanted that land. So there was, there was this <sighs> idea that, like, this life-saving enterprise. Well, I don't know if you can call hospitals simply that, but like um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was less profitable than a condo building yeah. or a mall. Um, I mean, I do, I did want to say like what I was saying, I don't mean to cast aspersions on hospitals. It's just that I have to navigate this careful tension as my training is in social and facial epidemiology. My work, I'm my My heart's work is mostly focused on health equity, but the niche I found was health care equity um, mm-hmm. I believe that healthcare care is actually a smaller slice of population health than public health um but the, the we have a lot more investment in health care, and we have a lot of work to do in the area of healthcare care, so that's where my my work ended up being. There's there's a statistic that's always floating around like, oh, well, healthcare only accounts for about 20% of population health. The thing is, like, that statistic is also based on the notion of an average patient. Um, Yes. And even I don't don't like the idea of an average patient or an average person. Uh, It's it's a fundamentally eugenicist concept. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But if we are if like we what we need is a more dynamic concept concept that recognizes that um we have an aging population we also have a changing uh I don't even like the word health profile but I think health profile is probably the closest to what I'm trying to say so it's important to jointly address public health and health care um and I think we are not just jointly addressing them but like coupling them more tightly so that Mm -hmm. we have primary prevention in the community and where people live, where people work. And then we have accessible health care when people need it. Instead of having health systems funneling millions of dollars that they can, that are fundamentally self-serving and and, and fundamentally self-serving interventions while public health is being defunded, at all levels of government
1: right and, and that's an important distinction because i i feel like there there is this rhetorical coupling of like good health care equals good health outcomes which obviously as you're saying like completely ignores all of the other things which contribute to negative health outcomes like um right. uh, employment shelter food
0: to, to get good health care typically people who have good health uh, because they're enabled by environments where they're spared from exposure to harmful chemicals or, you know. It's easier to have good health if you have money and live in a place that isn't next to a toxic (laughs) dump.
1: Yeah, and and especially if you're able to be certified for work to the point that you can access excellent insurance and good employer-sponsored healthcare. Mm -hmm. It, It sort of is it's this large value system of like placing a person on the continuum of, of readiness to work. Right. And, and your worth as an individual is then determined um, through your ability to be one, a smart consumer, but also your capacity to work. And I think fundamentally decoupling, decoupling like health outcomes from work capacity is a really important project that, that my hope is, is that like the fight for Medicare for all can, can sort of, Try to create that wedge um, that seeks to say, like, no, this is not just about health finance. This is about decoupling the uh, value of health being something that is only earned through work. Right.
0: Right. You just made me think about. Um, so part of the reason I was able to get through a PhD program or oh, get it was because it was I had support from the. I was in Illinois, so the Illinois State Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. Uh, so, you know, the name tells you what it's about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so disabled people, people who have qualifying disabilities, um, come to voc rehab for assistance with getting the necessary training, uh, that may enable them to enter the workforce and stay in the workforce and stay financially independent and not use like the social safety network um so there's like there's already already that's tied up with are you healthy enough to work uh okay mm-hmm. well, then you can get access to these resources um, mm-hmm. so you're right,
1: yeah, I mean I, there was something interesting I learned this year about how a lot of times if you're trying to Um, If you're trying to sue under the ADA for accommodations, for example, Mm. that oftentimes if you are certified by the Social Security Administration as uh, disabled, um, the certification for disability that you need to get SSDI and the certification for disability that you need to successfully pursue an Americans with Disability Act uh, legal claim are different because in the ADA, you have to prove that if you had the accommodation, you could do your job. And for the Social Security Administration, you have to prove that you cannot work even with accommodation. So we have this is like a great example of a structure that is built to sort disabled people and place value on their accessibility needs just from the very simple fact of their certification for work and their ability to be rehabilitated, so to speak. Yes. All right. I keep
0: while we're having this conversation, I kept thinking about Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um I don't think she coined mm-hmm. the term, but surplus population. Yeah. And how not only a prison's function to warehouse surplus populations, or surplus population being those outside of the formal workforce. Um, We also have nursing homes, long-term care facilities, um, homes for people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. And incidentally, all of those places are where COVID was basically allowed to spread unchecked.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it was almost invisible, if not for the people who were paying attention and and publicizing these uh, issues. Uh, Because these people are warehoused and out of public sight.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why I think your work in in medical geography is so important, because these borders that exist, these sort of categorizations, those places that we put people out of sight and out of mind, like directly contribute to health outcomes. And so trying to conceptualize why, where, how, and um, by what means these borders are created and enforced, like that's how I think we start to try and build power to dismantle some of these like system level um, oppress. I guess the Dean Spade would say like subjective systems. Uh,
3: yeah, I also think it's really important that you bring up surplus populations, because I think um, historically, for instance, if you think about um, and, you know, maybe I'm just saying this because, uh, you know, again, it's Medicare for all week, uh, we're <laughs> uh we've been talking a lot about single payer um but uh I th- I think for example one let's say fallacy that can be easy to fall in like for in- for instance there are a lot of people who say um, oh like labor alone will can win single <laughs> payer, right? For example. And like that's an important constituency, but I think that there is a um I think there's, you know, a history, at least in the American uh left of their being kind of a divide between uh, what we have of a labor of a labor movement and the, the constituency that is the surplus population, which is, um, by many accounts, you know, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's uh, writing is one. Uh, Marta Russell's is another. By mm-hmm. many accounts, uh, the surplus population, as it were, is um, you know just as much of a productive force of capitalism as labor. Uh, as as labor is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think, I think, uh, recognizing for example, that there is, you know, when when I was bringing up, um, uh, you know, distribution of hospitals, for example, and talking about coordinating power, I think one of the, one of the benefits of once you actually have a system where let's say like, if you even just took health finance, uh, Medicare for all and said, okay, there's going to be one blanket insurer health, the uh, federal government covers everyone's health costs, then you have like automatically brought this constituency together who are, you know, who are all uh, sort of, you know, like dependent on the same thing and it becomes something where you can actually, uh, you know, move people for leverage. Otherwise I think, you know, for example, you, you like keep the surplus population hived off in like literally in different parts of society, often institutionalized Mm -hmm. um, and you keep, you know, uh, labor in a different, area like beholden to their employer healthcare um and it's you know it automatically is a huge impediment not only to organizing but to uh, to to making it clear that you know these are these these are um groups of people who are equally being kind of used as engin- as like economic engines basically mm-hmm. mm.
1: i think crucially it sort of frames the the fight for healthcare as one that's sort of a zero sum um, equation where you have to, like, reallocate money, right? And um, mm-hmm. fundamentally, that's that's not going to work, I think, at the end of the day. Maybe my final question is, um, you know, you, you personally, I'm assuming that you are uh, for Medicare for All, but for you, what, like, what actually is unique about this policy proposal, which could give it um, if done correctly, some of the leverage that we're talking about? So I think, for one, with Medicare for All, um, whatever form it
0: takes, we are going to have to grapple with the spatial allocation of healthcare, care. Um, mm-hmm. Because the research showing that... Um, Closures uh, and mergers also have implications for ambulance response times and also mortality. So mortality associated with injury, uh, accidental and intentional injury, but also heart attacks. So this is also spatial access to care is a population health issue. Um, I don't. I think there's a reluctance to recognize that um, because. Among health economists, there's debates over. Oh well, do closures and mergers maximize efficiency? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you raise the point that these closures, these mergers may mean longer travel times, um, higher health, uh, higher cost for associated with healthcare use, um, and also changing patterns in primary care use. So, like, um, there's some research that among rural patients, longer increased travel times to care are associated with reductions in primary care use and increases in emergency department use. So not only are as I was saying earlier, not only are patients experiencing longer travel distances to care, they're experiencing higher health care costs, and they're also experiencing potentially worsening mortality. Yeah. Hmm. So it kind of it all kind of circles back to the way that we allocate resources, and the allocation is also about the distribution of resources in in social in geographic and social space. The way that we allocate uh resources has profound implications for how the health and well being of the population.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing too is that the advantage that we get from implementing something like Medicare for All could also have a an effect on what sort of data we're collecting and the ways that we're yes. able to study the health of the population and yes. how these spatial relations, um, I think we'll get a much better picture of how spatial inequity and how spatial relations um, really does have this huge impact on healthcare that or health outcomes, rather, that we can't really measure right now because we right. don't have um, we don't have this comprehensive, uh, mm-hmm. unified billing system. Right, like each insurance company has their own codes. Um, yeah, data incomplete. Lots of people don't have health care, and by creating a system like Medicare for All, where you have No eligibility requirements, which I think is important as we've talked about, like any eligibility determination is a judgment of value. So eliminating eligibility requirements, eliminating these qualification barriers for access and care gives us a better idea of like where and how to allocate spatial resources going forward in theory, because it can actually generate some of the data that we're just missing now, frankly, it just doesn't exist. Right.
0: And I think also... We're going to have to separate the documentation of health status fund billing. Mm -hmm. I agree. I was just reading a paper recently that was looking at some of the biases introduced when you do tie uh, the documentation of episodes of care with billing, where basically there's a tendency to document only the profitable. uh, Well, there's only one, there's a tendency to only provide services or that are profitable. Two, mm. there's a less inclination to document uh, symptoms or, you know, to, well, one, doctors, providers are crunched for time. So they're going to prioritize what they're paid to do. Um, and there's also less incentive to take full medical histories and possibly capture some of these comorbidities that are not being Caught in these episodes of care, um, so I think, like in addition to having a centralized system for billing care, we also need. Uh, I I do think that there may be a need to separate documentation for the purposes of billing and documentation for the purposes of bill, of documenting uh, health status or medical uh, health history, medical history for patients. Because right now, the system we have is so fragmented.
1: It's uh, That's actually a very important point, because right now, as it stands, most charting for patients primarily is oriented around notes that correspond to billing codes. And I think, yeah, that Medicare for All presents an opportunity to introduce a different system of uh, medical records and medical charting that could be more oriented towards health outcomes and managing chronic conditions than it is um, now because right now just Structurally, functionally speaking, the chart system is so tied into the aspect of billing that it's it's actually kind of pretty difficult to separate the two. And the billing aspect of it is prioritized because at the end of the day, the hospitals, these doctors, they need to get paid, right? And so that that becomes the primary um, sort of northern star of people's healthcare. Whereas the ultimate um, goal at the end of the day should be trying to remove some of these. These barriers, which like as, as um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, like mark, mark populations for premature death. Yeah, agreed well i really I really appreciate you coming on and talking talking to us today. It's been a lot of fun, and yeah, I, thank you. I feel like the spatial understanding of how Medicare for All could change uh, health administration and health outcomes is like a really important component that's just not being talked about. So thank you for coming and and talking to us as part of Medicare for All Week. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. and listeners, thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week. As always, Medicare for All now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
3: This has been Medicare for All Week from the death panel. Medicare for All Week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. Up next, in tomorrow's interview we speak with social epidemiologist Justin Feldman about police violence as a public health vector, and how our disorganized private healthcare systems skew data collection to obscure the negative public health effects of capitalism. To support our show and make event series like Medicare for all week possible, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.